Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live. Multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. So I think I started down this track a few weeks ago, but I wanted to give you an update on this story. So long story longer, was giving my son's friend a ride home. And we get into this conversation that he has an interest in building a gaming PC. So the update is now we are deep in the bowels of building this gaming PC and it's being done with 10 year old hardware, but the process is helping him understand what he's after. So his expectations, when he started down this route, he knew he had a game system. He knew that he paid money for a game system, brought it into his house, turned it on and that works. And so his expectation of a gaming PC was largely the same that he would go spend seven or $800. He would bring it back into his home. He'd plug it in and turn it on. Not wanting to wait as younger teenage kids do to actually have all of the money that he needs from the get-go, he instead goes about the process of buying little bits at a time. So buying a keyboard here and buying a piece there. So he engages me to say, hey, would you have any parts that you would sell me? So he comes over and we start picking out various different things. And in the end, he walks out with a computer that it has a little bit older of hardware, but it is, it works. And when he came to the bridge of, do I spend the extra $200 and buy a Windows license? In the end, what he concluded was, nope, I think, I think that's okay. I think I can do it with just Kubuntu. And so he left there with, Linux installed and owning his computer. And at the forefront, we walked him through the process to say, hey, do all of these steps, get all of these. Here's how you install your software. Here's how to get Steam up and running. Here's how to turn on compatibility mode and get all of this. We started with that process. In the end, my son helped him with a little Ansible recovery script that will bring his computer back the way that it is. And he's now stepped through the process because we were going through some bad parts and all the rest of it. He's gone through the process of assembling the machine himself, installing the operating system, installing all of the things. So to watch the next generation of technologists kind of come up and and find their passion and dig into the stuff has been deeply rewarding. So when you have those opportunities in your life to do those things, do those things. Glenn from the Geek Lab, if you're not in there, join at geeklab.ninja says, hi, Noah, just got caught up with episode 374. I've been running my own mail server for a personal family for almost two years this May. And it's been mostly smooth sailing. Part of that time was using mail in a box, but ended up switching away from it after many issues upgrading. I've been running it on MailCow for probably around five years, and it's great. It's Docker based, so there are so that it's smooth and it generally works. It does have Descript to install Nextcloud alongside the mail, although I haven't tried it myself. I run Nextcloud separately and just link NetCloud's mail app to the mail account accounts. So 
I guess a couple of my questions to those of you who self-host mail. First is, how do you deal with blacklists? Have you run into that issue? And if so, how did you resolve it? The people that I've talked to so far tell me things like, I have wound up on a blacklist, but it's usually only one or two. And once I reach out, it's usually only a day or so before it's resolved. We're going on week number three now where Microsoft has yet to resolve uh, a organization that I work with emails issued to sending to the entire yahoo.com domain, but they're still working on it as the Microsoft representative conveniently updates me every five days. I would gladly trade this problem for a, I'll reach out to a mail provider once every time this happens and if it gets resolved. But I'm interested, what kind of struggles do you guys have? And does that work for you? Does that not work for you? Penguin in the Geek Lab says, hey, no, I was wondering if you've if ever heard of Bunny CD, and I'm currently working on a revamp of my company website. The team behind it owns them. So I haven't heard of it specifically, but again, I'm going to direct your attention back to giving self-hosting and the open source uh, thing a try. So we set next uh, or owncast up here so that I could try it on this show and it works, but we don't have a ton of people that are showing up for the live show. The vast majority of people are either consuming it. If they are consuming it live, they're doing it over the radio. And if they're not consuming it live, a lot of them are downloading it over podcast. So I thought for sure when we stood the same thing up at Layton, like maybe it falls over because there's going to be more people that are there. Well, as it turns out, even when you put that in front of an entirely live audience uh, where it's ephemeral, where you can't go back and listen, and the only interaction is live, it takes off and it doesn't fall over. And so, yes, if you're streaming to tens of thousands of people, you should look into a CDN. But even then, I would tell you there are more open source friendly options like Scale Engine. If you're looking for websites, there's two reasons that people bring websites in. One of them is that that you get so much traffic on your own site that you need a CDN. So that's one reason to pull one in. But the second reason is you are a teeny tiny little site, but you're with a provider that hosts a bunch of sites. And so they need a CDN to handle all of the traffic that hits their organization. If you split that out and run your own organization, you won't be subject to those, those issues. So just something to think about. And then I was following along with this conversation in the Geek Lab about mobile operating systems. Some their user in there is trying out the Yolophone or specifically Sailfish OS. I've walked down that path. I'm interested in joining you when you arrive at success on that path, but he's already running, or she is already running into problems with the cameras not working on the Pine phone. Largely, what I found was, from a security aspect, you still need the Android instruction set to talk to the hardware. So if that's true, there it doesn't really matter what flavor you're using, you're going to get roughly the same hardware available security, except for the, the switches. The problem with the Pine phone is it isn't useful yet as a daily driver. The Sailfish OS is, a, I had a fantastic experience on it, just like this Just like this person is having. Everything about it feels natural, it feels polished, the tutorial walks you through it, it's great. The problem is when you need something that isn't available there. So I reached out for Signal. It Signal wasn't at the time available, maybe it is now, and what I learned from that venture was there are two problems. One, Signal isn't real cool with third-party clients, which is how I got started down the matrix route. And then the second thing is we're still making in incremental improvements with Linux on smartphones. So I still don't think it's quite there yet for a daily driver. Uh, the last thing I want to draw your attention to at the forefront of the show is inventory. So inventory has started to change the way that I'm running my small business. 
we have, as our business grows, we have more and more people that are, are involved in a project and that project needs parts. And some of these parts need to come together to form another part. And then that all has to get sold to the client. And it gets, becomes very cumbersome to try to track in any sort of linear way. And so I started to use inventory, which is an open source uh, software platform for managing inventory. And it's fantastic. So the first thing is it divides out your ability to purchase. That is to say, acquire and to sell. That is to say, to send back out. And just dividing that process and saying, hey, here, these people that are on these teams, they're working over here. These people that are working on that team, they're over there. And in between, everything is software controlled and everything is scanned in. Every, all of our suppliers or vendors are listed out. And so we know exactly what product we're buying. It's really changed the way that we've been able to do business. And so just wanted to give a shout out to them. I think they're doing an absolutely great job with an absolutely great open source product. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of February 4th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Helium OS, which is based on Debian, has announced its first public alpha. Only Office Docs 8.0 is out. The Document Foundation has released LibreOffice 24.2. Scribus 1.6 has been released. The Free Desktop team has released Mesa version 24.0. Canonical has announced that Ubuntu 24.04 will be released with the upcoming 6.8 kernel if all goes according to plan. Chaos Linux 2024.01 has been released with a pure KDE Plasma 6 environment. The immutable distro Nitrix has announced that version 3.3 is out. Microsoft has claimed that it is bringing Linux sudo command to the Windows server. And Apple has just launched a new open source programming language called PKL. In open source security news, a new glibc flaw grants attackers root access on major Linux distros, prompting a release 2.39, which is now available. In open source AI news, the Allen Institute for AI has released a fully open source large language model designed to help researchers better understand what's taking place under the hood by releasing not only the model and its weights, but also its full training data and pre-training code. Protect AI has integrated the open source LLM guard into its proprietary AI security capabilities after acquiring Layer AI. Hug and Face has launched an open source AI assistant maker to rival OpenAI's custom GPTs. And lastly, the Mistral CEO has confirmed a leak of a new open source AI model that is nearing GPT-4 performance. Ajit Pai. He was the chairman of the FCC from 2017 to 2021. And a guest this hour on Ask Noah's show. Ajit, welcome into the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for making the time, sir. When you first were appointed to the FCC, what was kind of the big picture way that you viewed the role of the FCC and largely the federal government as it relates to communication, the Internet and, and the regulations associated with it? That's a good question. Well, I think uh, fundamentally, my view was that to the maximum extent possible, every American should have access to all of the communications services and technologies uh, that were out there. And that was driven in part by the fact that I grew up in rural Kansas uh, in a small town called Parsons. And, uh, you know, I couldn't help but contrast when I went uh, home from Washington, D.C., you know, a lot of the uh, communication services and technologies I enjoyed in the D.C. area, you know, my friends and family might not get to enjoy in Kansas. And so I thought that the FCC could 
help you know, sort of level the playing field, so to speak, to make sure that every citizen, regardless of where he or she happened to live, uh, would be able to be a participant in as opposed to a spectator of the digital economy. Why you've been uh, an advocate for less regulation during your tenure in the FCC. Can you talk about why that is and what have been some of the results of it? Yeah, so in my view, uh, the question about regulation is not whether to regulate or not regulate. It is more of a question of when do you regulate. And what I mean by that is if you have uh, a view that you should preemptively regulate the marketplace and presume that every business is a, an anti-competitive monopoly and that uh, consumers are always going to be on the short end of the stick, then you're going to adopt a very strict regulatory framework, which might sound good in theory, but in practice what that means is that businesses are not going to have the incentive to raise capital, to hire people, to build networks, and ultimately deliver services, especially in areas of the country, uh, such as Kansas or North Dakota or wherever, uh, that might be more sparsely populated. Conversely, if you take the view that uh, you know, let's let the marketplace develop and take targeted action if there are any bad actors, uh, bad apples in the bucket in the barrel, so to speak, uh, then that might be a more surgical way to attack things through things like antitrust law or competition law, consumer protection law. And so generally speaking, that was my view that uh, the FCC historically had operated more on that preemptive model that, you know, let's structure the marketplace uh, before we even know what the market structure is, or let's presume that every internet service provider is going to be an anti-competitive behemoth, even if it's a small company in Kansas. And you know, to me, that was deterring investment and innovation in this space. And so uh, I generally try to shift the agency from more of a preemptive to uh, a sort of more antitrust consumer protection uh, view of the world, so to speak. That's interesting. Um, I'm particularly interested in this topic because I grew up in rural Canada and we have laws on the book that does, don't allow for the duplication of infrastructure. And that means that if you get a company, in our case, it was the vast majority of time it was Bell. Uh, if Bell came into an area, they might lay some infrastructure and then provide really poor service or not necessarily poor service from the standpoint of, you know, they're terrible to their customers, although they weren't fantastic, um, but more along those lines of, uh, you know, let's say that high-speed internet has just started to roll out and they're still running, you know, dial-up modems, that that level of problem. And yeah. so um, I'm kind of interested in like how you think that the FCC can help to like solve these problems as opposed to say an elective representative, like where does the line fall between you've got constituents that, that are basically left out in the cold, <laughs> right. says the guy in South Dakota. Right. Right. <laughs> um, I see what you did there. Yeah, nice. um, and so you've, you've got the regulatory framework of the FCC, or you've got the representatives that are elected, like where, where, what's your view on who should really uh, take the lead in this? Boy, that's a fascinating question. I guess I would answer in two different ways. Uh, first, with respect to which, I guess, branch of government, if, uh, as you might put it, uh, should take the lead, certainly Congress always has the ability to legislate in this field. In fact, the FCC can only act to the extent that the U.S. Congress has given the FCC the authority to act. And so the Communications Act of 1934, which has been amended many times over the years, 
is sort of the foundational framework for the FCC to take action. So I always took the view that if the elected representatives uh, have a position that they enmesh in federal law, the FCC is duty bound to enforce that. And so I always encouraged Congress to take the lead, especially in areas like telecom or technology, which are changing very quickly and the law uh, can you know, very quickly become outmoded uh, or you just might not be able to catch up. So I always encourage Congress to take the lead. That said, I do think that there are areas where the FCC does have the ability and I would argue the obligation to take a more proactive role, um, especially when it comes to things like national security or consumer protection, uh, where you know, the FCC does have authority to act and uh, you know just that authority has to be able is. The second strand of my answer, though, would be, uh, and I, I don't mean to bash Canada, you know, I used to live in Canada, so I really appreciate the, the people and the structure there, but it's a good contrast to the American telecom framework. And I remember as a kid in the 1970s and early 1980s in the U.S., where we had service from AT&T at our home. And as you said, the service was relatively not innovative. Uh, you know, the phone never seemed to change. I specifically remember asking my mom, well, why doesn't the phone ever improve? And it's like, oh, it's just an AT&T phone. You know, we just take what they give us, you know, that kind of thing. And that was historically the result of an unfortunate decision the FCC or the U.S. government rather made in 1913 called the Kingsbury Commitment, where uh, the U.S. government said, you know what, AT&T, in exchange for, uh, you know, us giving you a monopoly uh, to cover the entire country, we are going to impose the obligation that you serve every household uh, and we will immunize you from the antitrust laws. And so essentially you had the slow moving monopoly that, you know, the government was kind of happy because they got to say, hey, everybody's going to get telephone service. AT&T was happy because they got immunized from competition. But the consumer was the one left holding the bag that you know they weren't able to benefit from services as quickly as they might. And so to me, at least, the breakup of AT&T in the United States starting in 1982 was a great example of how we came to embrace the market, not preemptive government regulation uh, from whatever branch as the primary way that consumers are going to benefit. And fast forward to today, I mean, it's sort of unthinkable. Can you imagine telling someone under the age of 50 Yes, you know, you're going to have to use a wired telephone and pay an exorbitant rate. And that you know, those services are never going to change. It's just going to be voice service. I mean, people would look at it as, you, as if you're crazy because we take, take things from smartphones to 5G for granted. So um, even though it's you know, arguably messier, I would argue the policy framework of encouraging competition and entry and innovation is a much better one at the end of the day for consumers. So you would say it stifles innovation. It doesn't secure or make it more robust. Uh, oh, the it being regulation? Correct. Uh, or Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Uh, I mean, there's so many examples of it uh, from AM radio to FM radio. If you look up Edwin Armstrong for the folks who are out there, I mean, he developed FM radio uh, many, many years before the FCC finally got around to granting him permission to try it out. And even after after they did that, uh, because the agency was slow moving and at the behest of uh, some of the big incumbents on AM radio, you know, they essentially moved all the FM frequencies and just they completely crushed FM radio for a generation. And uh, same thing with mobile phones. I mean, the first mobile uh, phone call, you know, was placed in 1973. But because the agency was slow moving and it was such a regulatory morass, cell phones really didn't take off for another generation until the late 1990s. And so, you know, as I said, regulation uh, it theoretically sounds very appealing. We want, of course, consumers to be protected. But at the end of the day, it ends up stifling a lot of innovation that would benefit consumers. And in many cases, I would argue, 
is imposed at the behest of powerful incumbents that want to prevent competition and innovation in the space. And so uh, it's not the you know, most intuitive thing uh, to to see, but I don't know, as I look at so many different areas that the FCC regulates from radio to TV to media, to the internet, of course, uh, it just seems to be the case to me. Can you talk to me about your views on net neutrality? Why or why not is it helpful for keeping an open and competitive internet? Yeah, so I think uh, net neutrality, the theory of it is pretty sound, which is that we don't want any company, whether a broadband provider or a technology company like Google or Facebook, to be controlling what we see on the internet or what we can say on the internet. That I think everybody can agree with. And that has been the promise of the internet ever since it was commercialized in the 1990s. The problem with the concept of net neutrality as it became prominent in the 2010s and earlier uh, in this decade is that it has morphed into a demand that the FCC strictly regulate broadband providers as if each and every one of them was a slow moving anti-competitive monopoly. And, uh, you know, whether you're a big company like Comcast or AT&T or you're a small company like Wave Wireless, which serves a couple hundred customers in my hometown, the FCC was going to presume that you had dominance over the market and you're going to act anti-competitively. And so the FCC in 2015, uh, when I was in the minority of the commission, adopted these rules based on a 1934 set of uh, laws that you know, essentially were developed to regulate Ma Bell, uh, the AT&T monopoly over telephone. And so, uh, you know, broadband providers uh, ultimately were classified in the same way we would treat uh, that slow moving utility. And so to me, it unfortunately dampened the incentive to invest in infrastructure. And more fundamentally, it was addressing a problem that just didn't exist. The overwhelming majority of broadband providers don't act any competitively. They don't block access to lawful content. They don't throttle access to content. And so I kept asking the question, well, what is the problem that we were trying to solve here? And I never really got an answer to my satisfaction. And so when I took over the reins in 2017, we started a proceeding and ultimately decided to remove those rules and return to the bipartisan light touch framework that we had had from 1996, uh, basically. And so a lot of predictions were made back in 2017, 2018. This is the end of the Internet as we know Mm -hmm. it, proclaimed a lot of politicians and media pundits and celebrities and yeah, I kept track of every one of those predictions. You know, speeds are going to go down, prices are going to go up. There's going to be all kinds of blocking of content or websites are going to be inaccessible. And, you know, it's 2024 now. And suffice it to say, every one of those predictions has been proven untrue. Uh, millions more Americans have access to the Internet. Average Internet speeds are up over 170 percent for fixed broadband and over 300 percent for mobile broadband. Prices in real terms have gone down, and we see much more competitive entry. Companies like Starlink or T-Mobile 5G, things that didn't exist back in 2017, are now providing a lot more competitive choice. So I don't mean to spike the football of my critics, but I'm going to spike it anyway because (laughs) we took a lot of heat for that decision. And the proof is in the pudding. Uh, People can say and see what they want uh, from on the Internet from a broadband provider perspective. The irony is that the very companies that were pushing these net neutrality regulations, these big tech companies themselves in recent years have come under scrutiny for actually blocking and throttling content and deciding what people can see and say on the Internet. So it's kind of funny how uh, the worm has turned, so to speak, when it comes to those companies. So <clears throat> I was thinking about you hit on a lot of points there, and I want to circle back to to um, something that kind of struck me. So you talked about how like wave wireless in your hometown versus, um, you know, AT&T in New York, let's say. 
and how right. there's there's kind of a broad assumption across the board or there was that they all kind of behave the same. So that made me think, well, what is the where is the line between giving the local authority, say, to the state or even going more narrow than that and giving it to counties or individual townships versus the FCC, because they would know what is the impact of each individual business in their area versus the FCC, which has to kind of govern the entire, you know, 50 United States. Right. So this is a principle that has traversed both Republican and Democratic administrations on the federal level for many years. And this, the point, the principle is that uh, internet access inherently is an interstate service. If you and I are sitting in the same room and we text or email each other, even though we're in the same proximity, in proximity, the chances are that that communication may traverse a state boundary. And so over time, uh, both the FCC and the federal courts have seen, have argued that communication services like this are inherently interstate in nature. And so under the constitution and the laws of the United States, inherently interstate services can only be regulated at the federal level. Uh, certainly states have a role in, when it comes to communication services, for example, with respect to consumer protection or establishing uh, 911 accessibility and things like that. But when it comes to the sort of core regulation of communications networks, there's been a recognition that it has to happen at the federal level. And, uh, you know, I certainly believe in federalism. I think that all levels of government have a role to play in making sure that citizens can thrive. But when it comes to this particular issue, I think it is a federal question. So uh, I want to kind of follow up on that because at least for the internet, we're talking about uh, the vast majority of the people not actually owning the interconnect. So when you do the right. phone line, you know, Bell or AT&T generally, let's discuss the MVMOs, right? But Bell or AT&T or whatever, they own the phone lines that run right through the state border. But when you're talking about an internet provider, that's not necessarily the case. Like a lot of the times, they connect to a backbone like an L2 backbone, and that backbone is in charge of transiting the network across things. And so your little wave, uh, you know, wave wireless or whatever it was called, isn't really responsible for the traffic once it leaves their tiny little bubble of the world. It goes off to a back right. end and then, you know, spreads around. And so I think that that kind of muddies the, the waters in terms of interstate communication because it's not... The, I, now, I don't know, but I would assume that the vast majority of Internet traffic is not, you know, one, you know, AT&T connecting from AT&T to like themselves on the other side of the border, because that's just generally not where the Internet lies. They connect into like a super highway and the highway kind of disseminates the information. Yeah. So two points on that. The first is that. Uh, that you're absolutely right that the wave wirelesses of the world don't own end-to-end -end infrastructure, but that actually underscores the reason for it to be an inherently interstate service because all of these commercial middle-mile fiber providers or long-haul transport providers, uh, they're all interstate in nature. They don't operate in a single state. Uh, so you know that's one point. And the second point is, this is the other reason why the net neutrality regulations didn't make a lot of sense because they focused only on the last mile providers, uh, the wave wirelesses of the world, and it completely ignored middle mile fiber providers, uh, technology companies that were supplying content over the internet, content delivery networks, companies like Akamai that 
you know, essentially, you know, cache network, uh, cache content in different parts of the network. And so you know, the, the technology stack, as it is often called, is you know, much more uh, you know, uh, diverse, I guess you might say, than net neutrality regulations actually contemplate. One of the things that has been kind of contentious is this debate around ICS in prison. So the communication system to allow prisoners to make phone calls, some charging upwards of $17 for a 15-minute phone call. Do you see any obvious steps that could be taken by the FCC or maybe by private industry to reduce the cost of the communication for people behind bars? I do, and this is an outrageous issue, and one that you know came up many, many times uh, when I was at the agency, and it's a good example uh, tying back to the earlier question about who is responsible for setting communications policy. When the issue first came before the FCC, the worst abuses in terms of uh, high internet uh, um, inmate calling services or ICS rates came from providers of uh, services that were entirely within a given state. Uh, if you had a prison in Alabama, the uh, calling services were provided solely by a company that was in Alabama and providing services only in Alabama. And so my argument was a pretty simple legal one. Uh, you know, on the policy, I completely agreed with my colleagues. But on the legal side, there's a specific provision of the Communications Act that says if a service is in uh, completely in intrastate in nature, only within one state, then the state retains the authority to regulate in that area. The FCC does not have authority. And so my point was pretty simple. Like, look, you know, colleagues, my heart is with you on policy, but at the end of the day, we have to abide by the law. And so what I called for many times was for Congress to step in and pass a law giving the FCC authority over intrastate rates. And after I left, they finally did that. And uh, you know, now the my understanding is that the FCC has taken action on that new law that they've got, uh, new authority they've gotten, and has passed regulations to crack down on some of those exorbitant rates. And so um, I think it's terrific that Congress acted. And it's a good example of Congress taking uh, a step in you know, to acknowledge where the marketplace is going and giving the FCC the authority to fill in those gaps. Uh, but you know, there are many, many awful stories. And I visited a number of prisons and jails when I was in office from you know, Jackson State Penitentiary in Georgia, which was a maximum uh, security facility, to uh, a minimum security facility in Massachusetts. And, you know, I, because I wanted to see exactly what the conditions were there. And so, you know, very tough uh, issue, but I'm glad that Congress finally took action and that the FCC has followed up on it. So kind of dovetailing off of that, I wonder whether is there some sort of um, security logistical reasons why the Internet couldn't serve to facilitate the a lower cost of communication there, because that would then fall under the FCC, as we just talked about, um, and yeah. give some standard way across the prison system in the United States. That's a great question. And that's one of the things I asked. Uh, there was a facility, I think it was in South Carolina, if I remember correctly, that was experimenting. Yes, Lee Correction Fold facility. It's all coming back to me now. And so I remember they were experimenting uh, with, I think it was iPads or something like that, a tablet essentially that could do video calls over the internet on a secure system. And you know, that was, I mean, the, the, my recollection is that the inmates preferred that. It's, you know, a video call and you know, it's just much better than a plain old phone call, especially one that is you know, as expensive as those phone calls used to be. And so that's often the question I asked. And my understanding was that so long as the security aspect of it could be addressed to the satisfaction of the correctional officials, you know, that that's something that 
uh, the, the everybody was happy with. And so um, it's been a while since I worked on this issue. I've been obviously gone from the FCC three years, but my understanding is that some of the companies in this space now are migrating to more of a what is called an internet protocol or IP-based platform so that you can do things like video calls and you don't have to rely on you know, this sort of old style point to point, you know, payphone essentially call that was just ridiculously expensive. Um, yeah, a bit over the internet is essentially free at this point. And so that's where I hope uh, we could migrate some of these inter- inmate calling services to. I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit because this is kind of, this is kind of out there, but I've, as, as I've watched society kind of evolve, we've gotten to a point, sir, where it's difficult to function in life without an active connection to the Internet. You want to apply for a job. You want to apply for food stamps. You want to take advantage of you want to find out your meeting minutes at your local city council. All of these things are moving drastically towards an online platform. And yet not everybody has access to the Internet. Could you see a time either now or in the distant future? where we would get to a point where the federal government would run their own fiber as common carrier, kind of ending the debate of, well, if private telcos buried their fiber, is it theirs or is it uh, does it get classified under Title II? And we go back and forth on that. But if the federal government were to say, and we'll do it constitutionally, right, if necessary, pass a constitutional amendment, whatever it takes, but say, hey, in 2024, the Internet is almost like running water could you see a, a time where where it would become appropriate for the federal government to put in infrastructure to ensure that everybody had access to the Internet? So I, I do think the premise of your question is correct, that now uh, everybody recognizes, especially in the wake of the COVID pandemic, that Internet access is no longer a nice to have. It is a must have. And, you know, I think. In previous years, some people might have mocked it as, oh, it's just a way to you know, watch Netflix or you know, play online games. But you know, now people are thinking more about use cases like telehealth and telemedicine or remote education or precision agriculture or starting a business or just all of those life functions that have now migrated to this digital platform. And so I do think there is a national consensus, finally, that uh, broadband is really important for people to be true participants in the digital economy. I, I think the problem would be from a government, from the perspective of the solution, that you know the federal government is historically, anyway, not necessarily the best, uh, the most appropriate actor to build and operate complex infrastructure like that. Uh, you, you see it in other areas like transportation, where you know, things are highly inefficient, project uh, cost overruns are common, and services might not be adequate. And especially when it comes to something like a broadband network, you know, this is very, very complex stuff to to build and operate. I can tell you now from my current role, it's not easy for even a you know, good-sized company to do it. Um, secondly, I think the federal government uh, in 2021 recognized that it was important, but the way they addressed the problem, as you probably know, was in the bipartisan infrastructure law, where Republicans and Democrats allocated $42 billion to help close the digital divide and bring Internet to every single American. And their model was one that I think is probably the better one, which is to grant money to the states and then have the states decide through a competitive process which entities, uh, private entities, would be best positioned uh, to build networks in uh, some of these areas that are unserved and underserved. And yeah, so I think, and uh, full disclosure, my job now involves a lot of you know, trying to leverage the private capital that we bring to the table with the public funding that's coming through the bipartisan infrastructure law and other vehicles you know, to help finally close that digital divide, especially in some of these rural areas where people have 
inadequate access if they have access at all. And so, yeah, certainly there are other approaches. I know some countries have adopted more of the government-owned uh, broadband network approach, uh, but my, based on the work that I've done, at least, my understanding is that those networks have not uh, stood the test of time or you know, they've been exorbitantly costly and uh, over time, you know, they just really don't serve the consumer interest as well as you know, the private sector model that we have in the United States. But, uh, you know, always open to learning more from other jurisdictions that might have um, you know, information on this front. So uh, switching gears a little bit, I want to bring you into a, a current debate that's being happening. Um, are you familiar with the ongoing debates that are surrounding AI and automated phone calls? Oh, I've, I've seen the stories recently of uh, about President Biden uh, and the automated phone call in New Hampshire, I think it was. And uh, yeah, certainly, uh, generally speaking, uh, I'm aware of the issue and certainly spent a lot of time working on this uh, devilish problem of robocalls generally. So it makes me wonder, there's a big stink about, you know, they're too lifelike or some other thing where robocalls before you you would actually supposedly understand that they're actually a robocall. In my experience, that's not necessarily the case because they would just have a real human read and then play the recording or whatever. Um, and I was kind of interested in uh, just a general idea of are, what is your thought of AI generated uh, voices doing robocalls? Is, is, uh, is this really a big deal or is this just something that we're kind of hopping on the hype train because everybody is in a heightened state of awareness around AI right now? Certainly the latter is true. I think uh, all every topic seems to be infused with AI in one way or the other. But, but as to the former, I mean, I do think it's a serious problem. I think robocalls overall are a tremendous problem, whether AI generated or not. It's It was consistently the number one category of consumer complaints uh, going back for a decade, uh, including during my tenure, and it continues to be. And so you know, to the extent that AI only allows the turbocharging for both the number uh, and the, uh, I guess you might say, the quality of robocalls in the sense that people might perceive that they are actual calls, it's a serious problem. And so I would applaud uh, the FCC, which I understand has recently taken action or proposed to take action uh, to criminalize or otherwise make illegal some of those AI-generated robocalls under an old law known as the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And, uh, you know, I hope that whatever authorities, additional authorities Congress can give uh, the FCC or the Federal Trade Commission or other consumer protection agencies you know, will be vigorously enforced because uh, you know, it, I, I'm generally positive about the power of AI to improve people's lives and business processes and things like that. But when it comes to AI-generated robocalls, you can see all kinds of just really deceptive activity that could really harm consumers, especially vulnerable consumers who you might not know the difference between a real call and a fake call. And so you know, I really hope we take this issue seriously and protect consumers. How would you be able to strengthen the laws to, to guard against that? Like if robocalls have been consistently a problem, how are we like, how do we deal with it currently today versus, you know, how are we actually going to put a lid on that? And, you know, feel free to just gloss over how we do it today from a high level. Just just kind of curious, like what if we're spitballing, how do we actually tackle this problem if it's been a problem for decades? 
It is really hard. And uh, when I was in office, uh, a lot of people would ask me, I don't understand why you can't just get rid of this problem, just cut off the robocalls. And my answer back would be, look, you know, I am as frustrated as any of you. I'm a consumer as well. I get these calls. I hate it. But it's like playing whack-a-mole. I mean, we did a lot. Uh, we did everything we could to try to stem the tide. For example, we required telephone companies to essentially authenticate every phone call, put a digital fingerprint on every phone call, so that when they handed off that phone call to another carrier, if it didn't have that fingerprint, the second carrier wouldn't carry the call. Uh, we also cracked down on foreign robocall operations. I established MOUs with, with countries from India to Brazil to help tackle this problem. We took unprecedented action to go after the bad actors. Uh, the biggest fines in the FCC's history were levied under my administration going after these robocallers. We asked Congress for additional authority to fill in gaps, for example, to extend the statute of limitations so we could go after some of these folks who had placed robocalls more than a year beyond when we discovered them, just different things like that. And it's just very hard because the bad guys are always a step ahead. And I think my successor now is seeing that as well, that it's not as easy for her as she might have thought it was to go after these things. The number of robocalls continues to be in the billions. And you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, the, the key is going to be just to ensure that everybody who is in the chain of carrying a phone call from the originating caller to the intermediate uh, or originating carrier to the intermediate carriers to the delivering carrier have skin in the game, so to speak, from a regulatory perspective, that they know that there's a cop on the beat who's going to sanction them if they don't do what they need to do to weed out these fake calls. And I know it sounds easy, but it's just not as easy as it seems. So hopefully Congress and the FCC and other consumer protection agencies working together can figure it out because you know time is not on the side of American consumers who are just sick and tired of these things. And I certainly count myself among them. Well, on the other side of it is, right, They their tactics keep changing. So as technology advances, oh you know, we get SIP all of a sudden now it's these, you know, the, one of the things is you're getting these swatting calls. And at first it's like, okay, well, this is problematic. Where are they coming from? Oh, Indonesia, China, Russia. I mean, it doesn't. So right. it's, it's a moving target. Um, thinking kind of ahead and kind of looking towards the future, what can you share with me about the FCC's proposal to create a new framework for licensing space stations engaged in space, in space service, assembly, manufacturing, this sort of thing, uh, commonly referred to as ISAM. So this seems like this is the next way that we're going to build communication infrastructure, launching it into space with low orbit uh, satellites. I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited about it for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I just think it's cool because as a kid, I always used to love and be fascinated uh, by space. And we're finally exploring uh, aspects of space I think were truly considered to be science fiction not long ago. Secondly, and more seriously, I think just the possibilities for technological innovation in space are dramatic. Uh, just the sheer physics of it, that communication signals can be transported in space much quicker uh, than they can be on the ground, even if it's just light being sent through glass. You know, that it has uh, some sort of friction factor that you just don't have in space where you don't have that problem. And so theoretically, anyway, services could be faster uh, than they could be terrestrially. Additionally, uh, I think that this is one of the areas where America in the 21st century has truly led the way and innovated. Uh, and 
I remember thinking this when I was at a launch for um, uh, one of the launch companies down in Florida and watching this rocket go up, it, I realized that just a decade or two before, we had to go hat in hand to the Russians to be able to ask for launch capacity. And now, fast forward to 2024, we have launch capacity, we have satellite design, we have satellite construction and services that all can be done in the United States. So to me, space is one of the great American innovation success stories of the 21st century so far. And I'm glad that the FCC and the Department of Commerce and other agencies with equities uh, in this issue are really looking forward to the future and encouraging things like ISIM and uh, all, all, all sorts of you know, earth stations in motion. And uh, you know, I understand that they've also offered a streamlined uh, approval process for launch so that you don't have to come back you know, go through the burdensome process of filling out a thousand forms for every single launch. You can sort of batch launches now and things like that. And so um, making more spectrum available uh, for satellite communications. So all of these things are going to combine to a future where low Earth orbit satellites are able to provide services at a speed and at a price point that are going to be really attractive to consumers. And I just can't wait to see where it goes. Uh, it's not unthinkable to me to see in a, like 10 years, 20 years that we are operating everything from you know, residential broadband networks to IoT, you know, shipping management services entirely from space uh, and doing other things in space that I can't even conceive today. Looking at the opposite end of the spectrum, I would argue that ham radio is one of the first available avenues for innovation. It's where the geeks and the and the tech innovators of the day started to get into technology and innovate and build newer things that we now take for common, you know, is it's in every common household. Where do you see the future of ham radio or amateur radio going? Is that going to continue to be on the forefront of technology or do you think it will eventually fade away? I certainly hope it does. Uh, I've heard so many great stories of ham radio operators who got their start as kids or you know, young adults and they just fell in love with it. And that led to a lifetime fascination with communications networks generally. In fact, uh, I had the chance to meet many years ago, Alex Hills, who was an emeritus professor at Carnegie Mellon, who created the world's first Wi-Fi network. Uh, you know, and so uh, he now, but he told me, he gave me his book and he told me that he started as a kid in this entire industry as a ham radio operator. He just thought it was incredible that he could communicate with people around Alaska, around the world, uh, just through this device. And so uh, at the FCC, obviously, we have to license a lot of the ham radio operators since they're using uh, some of the airwaves. And to the extent we could, we tried to make it easier for people to get in and stay into the ham radio uh, you know, uh, game, so to speak. Uh, for example, we uh, reduced some of the burdens uh, for getting a ham radio, you know, in terms of the examination you had to take, yeah, it was just much it was much more onerous before, and we heard a lot of negative feedback from ham radio folks, and so we reduced the burdens on the examinations. Uh, we did a few other things as well uh, to make sure that ham radio operators could thrive. And so I'm hopeful going forward, you know, look, all of these kids nowadays, and I sound like a curmudgeon when I say this, I know, but a lot of them seem to be you know, addicted to their smartphones or iPads or whatever, but I do hope that they'll continue to play around with things like ham radio. It's a uh, I don't know. It's kind of fun, I think, still in the 21st century to to think about the use of those airways for that purpose. Uh, and yeah, I think it's going to hold a fascination for people for a long time to come. Ajit Pai, he was the chairman of the FCC from 2017 to 21. I guess this hour on the Ask Noah show. Ajit, thank you so much for the time, sir. We appreciate having you. We'll get you back on the program soon. 
Oh, really appreciate the time from you, and I hope I get a little bit of credit as a former FCC guy for keeping it clean. Love having true geeks on the program. It's just, it's fun to geek out with people and people that get it and people that are down to earth. And so really enjoyed our time with Ajit Pai. Hey, the show is about you. So write in live at asknoahshow.com or join us during our live segment. And we'd love to answer your questions Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Coming up, a couple of events I want to draw your immediate attention to. The first is Texas Linux Fest. Now, there is a decision to be made among us as to what Linux Fests we're going to go to. Now, Texas this year is going to happen April 12th and 13th in Austin, Texas. That is just a few days before Linux Fest Northwest, which is happening April 26th and through the 28th. So they're just a few weeks apart. So I draw your attention to those two first because you'll have to kind of, I think, make a decision. I was going to try to do both of them this year I think Texas is going to get cut, but maybe next year. Coming up next month, March 14th through 17th is scale. Now, I will be in uh, Pasadena for the 21st edition of scale. They've got a lot of really great speakers. And one of the things that I appreciate about scale, when people ask me, like, well, if I was going to go to a Linux conference and, and, you know, which one should I go to? How do I pick that out? So if you're looking to connect with people and you want to have small work sessions and you're not expecting a big, you know, thing. It's just, you're, you're interested in the hallway track. That's where I push people towards self. I think that's the best venue of all the Linux fests for that. I think if you're looking for the opportunity to really bump into some of the movers and the shakers of the world, that's where I think there's a tremendous value at scale. Unless you coordinate like meeting up, it becomes difficult to just have little working groups in part because scale is so large. They literally take over two huge buildings, but the opportunity to meet people from all walks of life. I was think going back as I'm getting ready to do scale this year and looking back through some of the interviews that we've done in past years, things that haven't even made the air, but I listen back to them or, or come across them. I'm like, man, this is really great. So there's a lot of really cool things that are happening. Companies like Facebook, Microsoft, these are the vendors that come out because it's worth it to, for them to get involved in the Linux community. And it's, they get the opportunity to then bring people into those companies and connect them. And so one of the things that happens and is and we featured this last year at scale there are their local education system brings students to scale and this year i'm likely going to have the opportunity to do it with my family which i think will be kind of fun so i hope to see you at scale scale is coming up march 14th through 17th then immediately after that i won't be there but if you can you should april 12th and 13th austin texas the texas linux fest then immediately following just a couple weeks after that it'll be Linux Fest Northwest, April 26th through April 28th, and then Southeast Linux Fest, June 7th through June 9th. So the dates are there. So book your hotels, pick up your travel, get all of that stuff worked out ahead of time. I think you'll find that they each have something to offer. There's Linux Fest Northwest, I would say, particularly this last year, the ability to sit through some of the talks and some of the people that came in there, projects that I've used for years, but hadn't had a real opportunity to meet the people behind them. And the scenery in Washington is just amazing. Not that it's bad in California or North Carolina. So they're all good. Go to all of them at least once. 
Thanks for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show is at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.